We do thank you for coming this evening. We appreciate your faithfulness. And some of you have been here almost every night. And we're especially delighted this evening, even though it is the Friday night, uh, to welcome amongst us for the very first time our good brother, Mr. Wallace Thompson. Uh, maybe no stranger to you. I've spoken to him a couple of times on the telephone. But he does come highly recommended. So you, that, that, that's a good thing, isn't it? And uh, Mr. Cecil Andrews speaks very, very highly of you. And of course, any friend of Cecil's uh, would be a friend of ours as well. And we're going to ask you to come now and preach this final message in this series of messages. Thank God you, bless thank you. you thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's good to be here. Uh, I'm conscious that I'm the last one of the week. Um, and it carries with it a certain amount of danger of repeating what the other speakers have said and I'm sure there'll be some of that but hopefully the repetition won't be uh, without some benefit if there is that repetition. I'm Secretary of the Evangelical Protestant Society uh, and we have sought over the years to stand for the great truths of the Reformed and Protestant faith and this evening my task is to look with you at what could be I suppose a depressing angle on the Reformation, but I don't want to end up at the end of the talk leaving you cast down. Uh, we're looking at the reversal or the attempts to reverse the Reformation. So there are things that we have to highlight uh, and to, to, to think about and to reflect upon. But we do rejoice that, as our brother in his prayer mentioned, that the Reformation was a work of God's Holy Spirit, uh, and God's Spirit is still at work in our day. So all the attempts to to reverse the Reformation, we can rejoice that our God is on the throne. I want just to read a few words, very, very brief reading from the Epistle of Jude, a well-known epistle towards the end of the Scriptures. And we'll read the first uh, four, four verses, yes. We'll read the first four verses. Let's hear again the Word of God. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of, God, of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And amen. The amen. Lord bless the short reading of his word to us here this evening. This week you have been thinking about and rejoicing in the Reformation. I know you've had uh, the Lord's Day and then the four nights here uh, uh, and you have been thinking about uh, all of the events of 500 years ago and it's good that we do so. The 500th anniversary has been and is being well marked. There's no doubt about that uh, and I'm personally very pleased and somewhat surprised to see the degree of interest that there has been in this 500th anniversary. There's a whole variety of books have come out on Luther some of them better than others, but most of them worthwhile reading or dipping into. Uh, there's been a series of seminars and discussions and conferences. Much has been written and said about Luther and about the Reformation. And these things, while again they're a mixed bag, they're, they're useful. And within our own evangelical and reformed circles, uh, again it's been encouraging that this event is being well marked with praise to God as we analyse and assess what happened 500 years ago. There's the excellent Free Presbyterian Church tract. I must commend you for that tract, which has gone out, as I understand it, to virtually every home in Northern Ireland. And we are praying in our own church for a blessing to be upon that endeavour. A wonderfully encouraging thing indeed, and you're to be commended for that. There's been special services, other leaflets and booklets, and so on in our churches, and we rejoice and continue to rejoice this year in all of that. It's good to remember. We are meant to remember. We have been given that gift of memory. We praise God for it. But as collectively as churches, we are to remember God's dealings in the past. It's a biblical injunction and command. We read in Psalm 44, verse 1, we have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times 
of old. Our fathers have told us, and we have to pass it on to our children and to our grandchildren, never to forget what God has done in the past. Yes, there's interest in the Reformation, academic interest and interest in evangelical circles, but do the ordinary people in the, the street really have any great interest anymore in who Martin Luther was or what he believed? Have they any idea at all what justification by faith means? Sadly, probably not. In Luther's day, what you, you note is that there was a general element of respect for religion among the people. People were religious, perhaps superstitious, but they were religious. Uh, today, people have lost any interest in religion. We have a secular nation, a nation that is given over uh, to uh, worship of false gods all around us. And a generation is growing up with no knowledge at all of the very basics of the scriptures. You and I were brought up to learn from our mother's knee and from Sunday school many fundamental truths. You'll know in yourselves here, and we find it in my church at Knock, that the children who come in tonight to our church meeting on Friday night, we have the church filled with children, but very few of them have any understanding of the very basics of the gospel. And if you watch any uh, quiz shows on television, and as soon as there's a question on the Bible, the most daft answers are offered up in response, which again illustrates the point I'm trying to make. We tonight rejoice in our uh, Reformed and Protestant heritage, but the people out there largely do not understand what it means. And even in Ulster too, where there's more of an understanding or an acceptance of Protestantism, there's largely little understanding of what that really means. And we have the additional problem here in Ulster of a, a Protestantism that speaks great, with great confidence in its own position, but is essentially f focused on culture and tradition. And you ask people what Protestant faith is about, again, they struggle to tell you it's a cultural and political and historical thing. And sadly, I do believe that we are living in increasingly dark times. Luther's days were extremely dark. And then the light of the gospel shone again. I, I fear that while we still have a, a rich gospel heritage in our province and nation, and while the word is still faithfully preached, we are going down the hill to increasing darkness. And you know, and I know, that the more darkness there is, the less light. We're coming into that darkest period of the year. The time will soon change. Less and less light, more and more darkness, until thankfully in the spring it will then all change again. But with the increase in one, there's a decrease in the other. And as the Proverbs tells us, where there's no vision, the people perish. And that's what we're seeing today. So the Reformation truths that we hold dear, they are precious truths. They are vital truths. They are fundamental truths. But, you know, we can never take them for granted because we could easily lose them again. I believe tonight, my friends, that they are under threat. And as Paul says in Hebrews 2 and verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now this evening I want to look with you at the a number of threats. I mean, I could talk here all night and we could be all over the place. We have to remain focused and not too long because I don't want to knock you all off to sleep. I want to look at a number of contemporary responses to this 500th anniversary in different religious circles and then to look at some key issues that I feel highlight the threat and the danger and the challenge and then look briefly very briefly, at the five solas. Now, you'll have looked at the five solas, I know. Uh, they're well known to us, and the, the Loyal Orders last year did an excellent job on uh, the Take Five, and this year they're doing the same sort of thing on Luther. But the five solas, I think, highlight again the five pillars of the Reformation, yes, but also they illustrate the five threats, five key threats to the standing and existence of those pillars. But first of all, let's look at the responses that we have seen to the uh, Reformation, basically thinking about what has been happening this current year. And the first uh, one I want to look at is the position of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Rome is a very wily and a very crafty foe. Rome is a chameleon. Rome will change depending on the circumstances. 
Today we have, we have a, a modern pope who claims to be a man of the people. He's humble. He exudes that humility in his mannerisms and it's been well milked and well marketed by the, the Vatican who want to portray him in that light. There's also talk of divisions within the Church of Rome while Francis wants to move down one road, the more conservative uh, bishops and cardinals want to hold to another route. Uh, and so it's been said that Rome today is a more friendly church, a more open church, a more, a more, just a more forward-looking church. But Rome, and Rome has shown interest in the Luther. Uh, the Pope Francis went to an event just this time last year in Sweden and spoke highly of Luther. But that's all, that's all well and good. That's all propaganda. Rome is no different. The Pope, yes, Popes come and go. And there are tensions, of course, within the Vatican in the reign of every Pope. But Rome has not changed from the days of the Reformation. And that might not even be right. I think Rome is now worse than she was in the days of the Reformation. Rome sees the Reformation today. She sees it as a schism, a breaking away from the true mother church. She continues today to insist that she is the only true church and that salvation cannot be found outside her. That's one of the major problems for many Roman Catholic people who are disillusioned by their church. They see the moral corruption and all the scandals. They, they see difficulty over a number of doctrines, but they, they feel trapped in a room with no, no doors. They still believe, most of them, that there's no salvation outside Mother Church, so therefore most of them are reluctant to move away until the Lord opens their eyes, as he did to Martin Luther, and then drove them down a different path. But Roman Catholic people see their church as flawed though she may be, as the only true church. And that has been the position down through the centuries. Pope Boniface VIII, back in 1302, said it's absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Got up to 1943, Hitler's Pope, Pope Pius XII. And again, Luther, and I, I, I diverge here slightly, but Luther is often accused of being anti-Semitic, and there were certainly signs in the latter years of his life that he had become very hard and harsh, but he was only really absorbing what his own church had taught down through the years towards the Jews. And coming up to the Second World War, this Pope, I'm going to quote from now, this Pope was known as Hitler's Pope, who turned a blind eye to the massacre of the Jews. But this Pope Pius XII said in 1943, so Pope Pius XII says, we must not pass over the truth of Catholic teaching, that the only true union is by the return of separated Christians to the one true church of Christ. Otherwise, none can be assured of eternal salvation. And despite what Pope Francis might be saying, that is still the position of the Roman Catholic Church. In Luther's day, you'll have heard of this week about the Counter-Reformation, which began just towards the end of Luther's life and continued after he died. And most of the Council of Trent was an attempt to reverse the Reformation. Uh, and many of the teachings and documents and, uh, and standards of the, Church, of the Council of Trent still stand today. The Roman Catholic Church has not changed. I spoke some years ago uh, in the Beavers Players Theatre. It was a strange experience. I was on the stage on my own, and there was quite an audience of people. I was speaking on the, uh, the subject of, um, of Protestantism, uh, and uh, the thing that I remember about it was there was a spotlight sort of fell on me and I felt a bit like Mr Bean in the, in the thing where he stands and then he, everyone else sort of waits for him to fall but I didn't thankfully fall and I addressed many of these issues I'm covering tonight and there was a question and answer session uh, and a number of Roman Catholic people at the meeting said they didn't believe in the transubstantiation, they didn't believe in the infallibility of the Pope, didn't believe in certain things, they believed that others were Christians even though they weren't Roman Catholics. And I said to them, I, I acknowledged all of that, I acknowledged that's where they, they were coming from, but the teachings of their church did not hold to that position. 
that in holding those views themselves, that was their own personal view, and you'll get many views from Roman Catholics about what they believe, but we've got to come back to the key documents. And I want this evening to focus my, my, my thoughts uh, on those key documents. Each stage of the way, look and test the Church uh, of Rome against what she claims to believe. The Council of Trent is still there. There's Vatican I, which was held in 1869 and 1870. There's Vatican II, 1962-65. And there's the key document, the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, which was about 1994. That's not very long ago. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church is worth having in your home. Uh, uh, you'll probably get it online as well. In fact, you would get it online. But just consult that, and you'll see there a gathering together in that Catechism of all the key teachings of the various councils and conferences that have been held. And that catechism is an authoritative assessment of the Church of Rome in 2017. So we can turn to it. And if we're talking to Roman Catholic people or talking to others, we can and should be able to back up what we're saying by reference to that catechism. Yes, Rome is today uh, a dangerous, dangerous enemy. And her desire is to reverse the Reformation. Her false teachings are still there. And she's a lethal foe because she mixes truth and error. Uh, and you'll get a wonderful example of that if you've ever listened to the Sunday morning services on Radio Ulster. Uh, if you're ready to go to church, sometimes you'd have them on. Uh, and you'll know right away when the church is good and when it's not so good. And occasionally, every four or five weeks, there's a mass, and you'll hear a hymn being sung that you say, that's a lovely hymn, we sing that in our church. Uh, the prayer, to begin with, might be okay, uh, but then as it goes on, there's prayers for the dead of the congregation who have departed, there's prayers for dead popes, there's, uh, then the, the bell rings and the mass begins, and there's the transubstantiation and the, the mockery of all of that. So you'll see from that service in 45 minutes the mixture of truth and error that makes Rome such a dangerous enemy. Islam, Hinduism, all the other religions of the world, they stand apart from the Bible. They stand apart from Christian teaching. But Rome evolved out of true biblical teaching. She emerged in full glory in the 11 and 1200s. And by Luther's time, she was flourishing and dominating everything. But it's all a mixture of truth and darkness. It makes her such a subtle and dangerous foe. So never be lulled into a false belief that Rome is changing. If Rome is changing, she's getting worse. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, papal infallibility, Mary being declared a co-redeemer with Christ, the doctrine of the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven. All these things have happened in the 19th and 20th centuries. If Luther was here tonight, he would be saying, it's worse than it was in my day. But because Rome is not in the ascendancy in our land today, she's meek and mild and friendly, but never, never be lulled into a false sense of confidence in her. So that's Rome in 2017, no different from what she was. Yes, she is different. She's worse than what she was in the days of Martin Luther. And then the ecumenical movement. I want to turn then to look at them, our friends in the ecumenical movement. Uh, Rome's efforts to reverse the Reformation have found many friends among uh, Protestant circles where they are prepared to move in her direction. Vatican II in 1965, the decree on ecumenism, the aim there was to bring back all separated brethren to Rome. See, they, they called us heretics for many a long year. Now they have softened that to separated brethren. But as I said earlier on, they do not regard salvation as being found outside of the fold of the church. So therefore all of us tonight here are heretics. We are wandering in darkness and confusion. And what is ecumenism? Well, the dictionary defines it as the principle or aim of promoting unity among the world's Christian churches. Which again, sounds fine on paper, if those churches themselves are sound doctrinally. Our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, prayed that you and I might be bonded together as one. And there's a wonderful ecumenism. 
and I rejoice in it tonight. I've come to you from the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm happy to be here among my friends in the Free Presbyterian Church. And within my work within the Evangelical Protestant Society, we, we bind people together who love the Lord, who come from different churches, but they're, they're, they're united on the principles of Reformation truth. And that's true ecumenism, and we rejoice in that. And we need to reach out to each other. We may have differences over certain things. Of course we do. But they're minor. We're united on the fundamentals of the, of the faith. That is true and good ecumenism. But what we are faced with is a false and dangerous ecumenism. Your own denomination grew out of that. Mine similarly back in the 1920s when again there was a heresy trial and Professor Davies of the Presbyterian Church was found not guilty of teaching heresy in the Presbyterian College. We've got to stand against these things but these people are all around us. Uh, and uh, there, there's, there's no doubt that it's getting more and more centre <coughs> stage. We praise God for many churches where the word is faithfully preached. But we are facing the increasing determination of ecumenical elements within Protestant churches to reverse the Reformation. And again, I could give many, many examples. But I think the Church of England's reaction to the Reformation really sums up much of the mealy-mouthed comments that we've heard from ecumenists this year. We've heard the Pope himself praising Luther. We've heard other leaders in the Protestant churches saying similar things. And in January of this year, the Archbishop of, of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York issued a detailed statement. I'll read some of it to you. In this Reformation anniversary year, many Christians will want to give thanks for the great blessings they have received to which the Reformation directly <coughs> contributed. Among much else, these would include clear proclamation of the gospel of grace, the availability of the Bible to all in their own language, and the recognition of the calling of lay people to serve God in the world and in the church. That's all fine. Remembering the Reformation should bring us back to what the Reformers wanted to put at the centre of every person's life, which is a simple trust in Jesus Christ. This year is a time to renew our faith in Christ and in him alone. Now you'd say amen to that, wouldn't you? But the statement goes on. Many will also remember the lasting damage done five centuries ago to the unity of the church in defiance of the clear command of Jesus Christ to unity and love. Those turbulent years saw Christian people pitted against each other such that many suffered persecution and even death at the hands of others claiming to know the same Lord. Remembering the Reformation should lead us to repent of our part in perpetuating divisions. Such repentance needs to be linked to action aimed at reaching out to other churches and strengthening relationships with them. This anniversary year will provide many opportunities to do just that, beginning with this week of prayer for Christian unity. We therefore call on all Christians to seek to be renewed and united in the truth of the gospel of Christ through our participation in the Reformation anniversary, to repent of divisions and held together in him to be a blessing to the world in obedience to Jesus Christ. Did ever hear such a little waffle in all of your life? Puts of it are all right? Yes, they are. But largely that is waffle. It's saying the Reformation was good and also bad. A blessing and also a curse. And Peter Masters of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London described the statements as stunning ecumenical cunning. And he, he's right in that. And what those words there that I've quoted, they're typical of the sort of double talk that is used over and over again. And people can, without knowledge of the scripture, without knowledge of reformed truth, be again beguiled and deceived by these weasel words. What we've seen in the Church of England, we've seen in the Presbyterian, Methodist and other denominations, sadly, uh, different signals coming out, different messages coming out. And within Northern Ireland, uh, sad to say, the ecumenical movement continues to make strides forward. There in the last year that in St Anne's Cathedral we had the appointment of the Reverend Edward O'Donnell, parish <laughs> priest, as an ecumenical canon. First time ever in St Anne's that a Roman Catholic priest was serving on the cathedral chapter. So you have that, that happening. And as well as this desire on the part of the ecumenical movement to draw the Protestant churches ever back to the fold of Rome, the waters are further muddied by liberalism and false teaching generally in many of our churches. You should rejoice tonight that you're in a gospel church because there are many churches tonight where people go on a Sunday morning and come out unfed, unhelped, 
and left in darkness. And that is the reality of what we're faced with in our own land. So you have the Church of Rome. You have the danger, the, the ongoing danger of the ecumenical <coughs> movement. And then thirdly, I want to look at evangel evangelicalism's reaction to the Reformation. I mentioned at the start that there was a lot of good things happening and are happening, and we rejoice in that. Many of our people are indeed uh, just rejoicing and thanking the Lord for the Reformation. But within, and this is the most alarming thing of all, my dear friends, tonight. We don't expect much from Rome. We don't expect much from the false ecumenical movement. Those are things that are just going to happen. But within evangelical circles, there's a wobbling. Dr. Paisley used to speak of the jelly and the evangelicals, and that's what is happening today. And as you look at the broader reaction of some evangelicals to the Church of Rome, we do have cause for concern. In the 1990s, it was uh, uh, Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, and Jim Packer and others who developed this Evangelicals and Catholics Together movement. And the view was then that the differences between Rome and the Evangelical people were becoming less and less. Colson referred to Roman Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he said, we have differences, but on the ancient creeds and the beliefs of Christianity, we stand together. Now these are coming, these statements that I'm quoting from now are coming from evangelicals who should be holding to the same views as us. In 2005, there was a book written by Mark Knoll, an American evangel evangelical, and Carolyn Ninstrom called Is the Reformation Over? And uh, I don't know how many of you here would have known that our late brother George Dawson, George was a good friend of mine and George and I, Shared, we read that book together and talked about it and said it threw up many, many questions for us. And I often think of George when I go back to the book and look at it again. But Noel, Mark Noel said in that book that the differences between evangelicals and Roman Catholics were infinitesimal. And his view was yes, the Reformation was therefore basically over. And I saw a quote just recently on the internet from a pastor, Andy McQuitty, of a large church in Dallas, a large Protestant church. This is just a very recent quote. It's a very intriguing and alarming quote. The rift that occurred between Catholics and Protestants 500 years ago is theological pettiness. We'll have plenty of time in heaven to figure out who was right about purgatory and Mary. John Paul II was a man of God whom all Christians should affirm, thank and emulate. Such utter nonsense. Just look at that. Just look at that. We'd have plenty of time in heaven to figure out who was right about purgatory. There is no such place as purgatory. It's an invention of the Church of Rome, which they still hold to today, and we'll come back and look at perhaps later. It doesn't exist. Uh, who was right about Mary? Well, we, 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 uh, we respect Mary. She was uh, an honoured lady, uh, and we rejoice in what the Lord did through her. Uh, but she was a sinner saved by grace. She had faith in her son uh, as her saviour. Uh, and she's in heaven tonight because she had faith in Jesus Christ, as everyone else who's in heaven is there on that basis. So the nonsense about Mary being a co-redemptrix and, and the bodily assumption and the immaculate conception, this man says we'll figure out in heaven who was right. We know who was right and who was wrong. And John Paul II was a man of God, he said. Well, when John Paul II died, the Roman Catholic Church couldn't tell you where he went to because they had to go through a process to make him a saint. So he was presumably somewhere out in purgatory. This man who was the Holy Father. This man who was infallible when he sat in St. Peter's chair. This man who was the head of all of the church. Yet when he died, those who came after him had to look and search for two miracles to then make him a saint. And of course then they had to dig up his body and the whole palaver of the, of the, the uh, canonization that you and I would have been aware of on television short, a short number of years ago. When John Paul II, who died, uh, and uh, this man says he was a man of God, well, they didn't even know what sort of a man he was. He was turned into a saint by his successor. And praise God tonight, if you're a believer, you're a saint. And we rejoice in that, you know. We don't feel like saints. We don't act like saints. But when people in the Roman Catholic Church speak of making people saints, I say, well, look, the Lord made me a saint by imputing his righteousness to me. Paul wrote to the saints in Rome. They weren't dead. They were living. 
spiritually and physically. But that sort of quote from that pastor, Andy McQuitty, is, is a reminder to us of how within the Roman Catholic, or within the evangelical circles, there is a growing acceptance of Rome. It's a very, very worrying development. In 2009, there was a joint declaration between evangelicals and Catholic, Roman Catholics called the Manhattan Declaration, <laughs> a call of Christian conscience. And I raise it because this was a, an attempt to bind the evangelical constituency and the Roman Catholic Church together on moral and ethical issues. Issues such as abortion and homosexuality and that type of thing. And here is a key thing. A lot of evangelicals today will tell you, look, yes, we don't always agree with Rome. We have differences with Rome on a number of fronts. But Rome at least is good on moral issues. She'll take a strong stand on abortion. She'll take a strong stand on same-sex marriage. And to some extent, that is quite right. That is quite right. But the problem is, that kind of then is a veneer that covers a deeper problem. Because the key issues are not social or moral or ethical. They are, they are based on doctrine and theology, as you'd have heard this week uh, during the four nights so far of your meetings. Yes, there's, a, there's a, a failure on the part of many of the main Protestant churches to stand firm biblically on abortion and to stand firm biblically on uh, homosexuality and all those issues. We see a crumbling there. But that's not an excuse for us to suddenly say we can now work with the Roman Catholic Church because we're faced with these new enemies of secularism and humanism and godlessness. No, you can't have light and darkness coming together to fight another form of darkness. But that's what that Manhattan Declaration sought to do just a few years ago. Uh, and again, it, it, it seeks to draw together uh, evangelicals and Roman Catholics on a common agenda. All of these things are worrying. All of these things are subtle. There's a subtlety about what is being said and done. It's like Humpty Dumpty and Alice where he said that when I use a word, the word means exactly what I want it to mean, nothing more, nothing less, which is a very convenient way of using words. And many people use words on that basis in our society today. There's a, there's a deceit and a, a sleekness. And a lack of transparency and honesty that is a concern and is circling around <laughs> major elements of the church. We have got to take our stand. We've looked at Rome tonight. We've looked at the ecumenical movement. We've looked at the, the sad developments within broader evangelicalism. And we have got to stand firm on Reformation principles. Back in 1873, a long time ago, at a meeting of the Evangelical Alliance in New York, a delegate from Canada said these words, and I think they're a very good summary for us now tonight in October 2017. He said, this is going back to 1873, the most formidable foe of living Christianity among us is not deism or atheism or any other form of infidelity, but the nominally Christian Church of Rome. I repeat that. The most formidable foe of living Christianity among us is not deism or atheism or any other form of infidelity, but the nominally Christian Church of Rome. He said it in 1873, but it's totally relevant uh, and vitally central to our position today. That is the position. Now, I've summarised as best I can uh, the broad sweep of the churches in this Reformation year, and we see again that there is a danger to the Reformation. Rome is active Ecumenism is moving back towards her at every opportunity and there is a wobbling within evangelical circles. We might feel outnumbered by that and in many ways we probably are. But the word of God often tells us that it's the remnant, the faithful remnant, the twos and threes, the small numbers God will use. And I, can, I want to urge you tonight, stand fast, brethren and sisters, in the faith. Don't be deceived by the wily and woolly words of those who would compromise. And I want just to look for a few moments now at a number of, of key issues uh, that confront us uh, today that I have been either indirectly involved in or had some hand in terms of handling them in the media. And the first one is the possibility of a papal visit 
next year. And these sort of these examples I'm giving you now help to illustrate the points I've been making about the danger to the Reformation because of weaknesses within uh, the society that we live in and within the church. Now the Pope is due to come uh, to Dublin next August for a family conference and there's been a lot of talk about him coming up to Northern Ireland to complete the unfinished business when John Paul II couldn't come in 1979. Now, none of us has any desire to deny the people of a particular faith the opportunity to see that the leader of their faith. It would be churlish of us not to want to allow that to happen. But this is no ordinary visit neither. There are a number of issues here that I won't go into, but he can't just come from Dublin to Northern Ireland on the train or whatever way he would come. He can't come up here because he's coming from one jurisdiction to another. And he'll probably be coming as head of state. And that's where the problem lies. The Pope is not just the leader of a church. The Pope makes claims, and the claims that Francis makes are the same as those of his predecessors, that he is the supreme pontiff of the universal church. Remember what I said? No salvation outside her fold. So when the Pope comes, he claims to be the head of all churches. And in fact, he also claims to be the head of all nations upon the earth. Pope John Paul II used to always fall down and when he got off the plane, he would kneel down and kiss the ground and devote the ground, devote the nation that he was visiting to the, to the fold of and to the, to the care of the Virgin Mary. When the Pope comes, he comes with the arrogance that always goes with his role. He is successor of the Prince of the Apostles and mm -hmm. is vicar of Jesus Christ. So therefore no visit by a papal leader can be purely pastoral. But of course, whenever the media pick up that he might come here, there's always a flurry of excitement and, and interest and some politicians and church leaders <clears throat> are falling over themselves to express the desire to see him as soon as possible. When it was mentioned, I think, towards the end of last year, the former moderator of the Presbyterian Church, the Reverend John Dunlop, was gushing in his praise. And he urged Protestant churches to engage positively with the visit. He couldn't wait to see him. It would be a wonderful thing for us all. Reverend Trevor Gribbon of the Presbyterian General Assembly said the Pope would be most welcome. Church of Ireland Primate Archbishop Richard Clark said the Pope would be welcomed with open arms. That's again an illustration of the danger of false ecumenism. And the further danger, my friends, that evangelicals will not see through the subterfuge. Uh, that is the danger facing us, that when he comes, as he may well do, we need to remind ourselves of who he is and what he claims to be. The subordinate standards of the Presbyterian Church and the Church of Ireland are sweeping in their denunciation of Roman Catholic doctrines. And the Westminster Confession of Faith to which Dr. Dunlop and the Reverend Gribbon, along with other Presbyterian ministers, subscribe, they, it's clear. They, they may say they can opt out of some of these, but it states there is no other head of the Church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. And at the time when the media and the men that I have mentioned to you now were uh, pushing for this visit to happen, we put a statement out challenging them in the light of the subordinate standards of their churches to justify a welcome for a papal visit. But needless to say, none of them have responded. Now he may come, he may not. There are those politically who would see it as the, one of the final pieces of the peace process jigsaw. And there's no doubt that behind the scenes, great efforts are being made to bring him. Our churches will have to decide how to respond to these things. But I think that what we see there in the flurry of desire to get him is that within the church there is that compromise and then sadly out there in society no understanding, no vision and the people perish. The ordinary man on the street would say, oh sure, why not let him come? Sure, he's just a leader of a church. Why would you hold him from coming? Again, lack of spiritual understanding. Darkness can flourish as light is in retreat. 
So the papal visit is one thing. The other issue then is the attendance at Mass. And this has raised its head because of the controversy over evangelicals attending Requiem Mass. But you'll have been looking this week, and I'm sure you're aware of the significance of the Mass. I mentioned it there in the, in the radio service in the morning when you hear the bell ringing. At that moment, a magical act occurs that the priest only can do, and that is to raise the wafer, and it turns into the actual body of Christ, uh, and the, the wine turns into the actual blood of Christ. And uh, this was a big issue, a major issue at the time of the Reformation. And the Reformers themselves sought to formulate their own thoughts on the nature of the Mass. But they rejected any concept that this was literally the body and literally the blood of Jesus Christ. But every time that happens, it's a fresh sacrifice of Christ upon the cross over and over again. And yet we know from the Old Testament scriptures that when the Old Testament ended, all the sacrifices of animals, it was done and gone forever, never to be repeated. Christ said upon the cross, it is finished. No need for any further sacrifice. And let's not forget that many of the martyrs died cruel deaths in the flames of martyrdom because of their refusal to accept or be present at a mass. Uh, some John Bradford said, and he died, but he, before he died he said, I deny transubstantiation, which is the darling of the devil and daughter and heir to Antichrist's religion. My friends, if we had an understanding of the nature of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, of the intensity of that sacrifice, of the complete and final nature of that sacrifice, of the wonderful impact that it had in bringing salvation to you and me, we would not countenance being anywhere near a popish mass. It is a blasphemy, it is a most horrible thing that Christ Jesus who died should be sacrificed over and over again. When you and I gather around the Lord's table, we remember his death till he come. And we know that the elements that we, take part, we partake of are still those things that, we, that they were when we brought them in. They haven't changed. But they're tokens of remembrance. It's a sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But the Mass is a sacrament and a sacrifice. The 1994 Catechism says, In this divine sacrifice, now I'm quoting from 1994, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ, a flesh given life and giving life through the Holy Spirit, preserves, increases and renews the life of grace received at baptism. And that the search of the wafer is to be adored and worshipped with supreme adoration. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ, a flesh given life and giving life to the Holy Spirit, preserves, increases and renews the life of grace received at baptism. Westminster Confession of Faith rightly says that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominably injurious to Christ's one only sacrifice, the alone propitiation for all the sins of his elect. Now, it's an area of controversy. Attendance at the Mass during a time of a funeral. But it is still a Mass. It's a requiem Mass for the soul of the person who has departed. It's a prayer for their safe passageway through purgatory. But there's difficulties, I know that. There's difficulties at a time of bereavement. It's a sensitive time, not a time when you want to be uh, confronting your friends. But surely we have to be faithful and loyal to our Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Uh, and we're being told today, oh, we have to go along and not take part and so on. I don't think we should be anywhere near it. I know it's a conscience issue, but a proper understanding of the Mass must surely lead us to conclude it is more important to be faithful to God and his truth rather than to please fellow man. The issues here are so fundamental, so crucial and so central that evangelicals must never, I believe, be anywhere near the sacrifice of the Mass. Because by doing so, we're dishonouring God. And again, it's an indication of a lack of vision, a lack of understanding 
that so many evangelicals are prepared to say, well, I can, I can solve my conscience by being there. It is indeed a matter for them, but I believe they are wrong in doing that. Another thing I want to mention just too is the issue of rest and peace, which may be a fairly insignificant thing in some ways, but also highlights a much broader misunderstanding of Protestantism and the differences between Protestantism and Romanism. Social media is the, is the uh, place now, of course, where people discuss and debate, and I, I, uh, I'm a fan of it, I have to say, perhaps too much so. I, I use it a lot, perhaps too much, but uh, what I noticed some time ago was that very many Protestants are putting RIP when a friend dies or someone that they know about dies, they're saying RIP. And I highlighted at one point about three years ago that Protestants should not use those letters, RIP, because when death has come, the eternal destiny of the soul has been decided. Uh, I highlighted that then, and then it was picked up again this year at a 12th of July demonstration in Fermanagh, and the media got hold of it, and I was questioned again on the issue. And it was a wonderful opportunity just to remind myself and those that I was speaking to and debating with what the significance and wonder of the gospel, that you and I are prepared for eternity by faith in Christ alone. Before we die, that's all settled. It can't be settled after we die. So I had a great opportunity on a number of radio stations, some of them were in the Republic of Ireland, just to highlight the gospel and to explain to dear Roman Catholic people that we do not use the letters RIP because if we're saved and have gone to heaven to be with Christ at death, then we are resting in peace. No need to pray for it to happen. But if we have not made our peace with God through Christ, when death comes, we're lost forever in a lost eternity of hell. These are sobering thoughts. But the RIP issue opens up that broader debate. And I found in discussing it with people, a greater respect shown to me by Roman Catholics than by some Protestants. In fact, I was subject to a torrent of abuse on social media for raising this issue, that I needed to go and get a life, that I was, that I was wired up to the moon, that I was living in the past, I was a harsh, bigoted person. And that was coming from those who would claim to be Protestants. So it illustrates again that where there's no vision, the people all around us are perishing. But praise God tonight that we don't need to use those letters. If we're in Christ, then we are at peace tonight and we'll be in peace in glory forever. And the rejection of those letters also rejects the whole concept of purgatory because that's where RIP comes from, that if you die, you're in purgatory for X number of years. It could be hundreds of thousands of years and people are praying that you'll rest in peace and that someday soon you'll be taken out of that purgatory and placed into heaven. So I've spoken about the attitude of Christendom in the broadest sense. I've looked now at those three issues uh, of the papal visit, of the attendance at the Mass, and the use of letters such as RIP. And my time is virtually up, but I want briefly and very briefly to look at the five solas. And it will be brief, I promise you. Because the five solas, which are well known to us, five pillars of truth, they are the five alones. And it's wonderful to, to look at them and to understand them and reflect upon them. And then as we do so, to compare Rome's position on all of them. And you'll find again there, completely different attitude on all issues between Protestantism and Romanism. And as we look at Rome's attitude, we realise again in every one of these areas, that's where the threat comes from to the five pillars of the Reformation. The five alones to Rome are the five pluses. They don't regard them as standing alone. They regard them as one thing plus something else. And you know them, I'm sure, as well as I know them. I'll go through them very quickly. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. It's the first of the five solas. We praise God tonight for God's word. The entrance of thy words giveth light, the psalmist says in Psalm 119. I've spoken about darkness and about light. Where the scripture is, there's light. Where the scripture's absent, <coughs> there's total darkness. Jesus said, thy word is truth. Where the scriptures are found, there's truth. But without the word of God, there's only lies and falsehood and deceit 
and nonsense. And that's what we see all around us now. Lies and deceit because the world has turned its back on the word of God. But praise God for the Bible. The Reformation that was rediscovered by Luther and translated into German. And we praise God tonight for our Bibles and our own language. And all scripture we believe, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for, for, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It tells us all we need to know about our relationship with God and our standing before him. It was the preaching of the word, the reading of the word that led you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can't find Christ outside the word of God. You'll see God's handiwork, yes you will, all around you in creation. But you have got to come to the word of God to find the reality of, of your sin, the reality of God's holiness and the wonder of salvation to be found in Christ. The word of God is such a central thing. And sadly today in many churches it's not central in the preaching. It's not preached with, with effectiveness and authority because it's challenged and doubted and queried. We must lift up that precious word of God before men, how, how men and women and boys and girls tonight need to hear the word of God, hear the word of the Lord. But sadly, Rome doesn't hold to the centrality of Scripture. That was one of the issues at the Reformation. People were denied access to the word. Even a few years ago, I used to work in the civil service and I brought my Bible out of my drawer uh, at lunchtime. Uh, and a colleague, a Roman Catholic colleague, said to me, well, what is that? And I said, that's my Bible. And he said, where did you get that? And I said, I just have it. it's my own Bible. I just bought it and I have it. And I said, several in the house. And he said, do you read that? And I said, yes. And he was actually quite amazed that I would be doing that. There's an educated man, a man in his sort of 40s, and uh, he, he was just intrigued. He said, oh, the priest does all that for us. Um, and I had a good, good, good conversation with him a number of days on the subject of the reading of the word. But you see, Rome, Rome, Roman Catholics will leave a lot of the reading of the word to their priest and to the interpretation by their church. The 1994 Catechism says, The task of giving an authentic interpretation to the word of God, whether in written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. So in other words, Rome is saying, it's the Bible. Yes, it is. The Bible interpreted by the authorities of the church on your behalf. And the whole body of tradition that's developed down through the centuries stands there as well. And it stands as having equal importance to the word of God. So if there's a conflict or tension between them, the church will decide what is the most important authority. They believe the Bible, the Old Testament, the Apocrypha and the New Testament, but they add to all of these things. We believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be the infallible word of the living God. So Rome does not accept the centrality and the all-sufficiency of the precious word. Secondly, Christ alone. When Luther turned to the word of God, he saw this angry God, he feared him. Then he also saw Jesus Christ in all his glory and all his wonder. And the Bible points us to Christ and Christ alone as the Saviour. We have fallen into sin through Adam and Eve. And there's only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. When you and I were saved, it was through faith alone in Christ alone. Rome will speak of Christ as Saviour. Yes, she will. Again, this is where the, 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 the mealy-mouthed words come to the surface. She'll speak of Christ as a saviour, but also she views him as a judge. And Luther said when he was younger, there were paintings in churches and in people's homes of Christ, this fearful-looking figure sitting upon a throne. And it was that fear that Luther had been brought up to, to, to look to Christ as someone fearful and distant. And to then turn to Mary or the other saints to intercede on his behalf before the Lord Jesus Christ. And that today is what happens. You look at the death notices in a Roman Catholic newspaper. You, 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 uh, you realise that they're praying continually to various mediators to speak on their behalf in the presence of the Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, and they'll ask Mary, primarily Mary, to speak to her Son on their behalf. 
They say of Mary her role in relation to the church, this again is a 1994 catechism, and to all humanities goes still further. In a wholly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope and burning charity in the Saviour's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she's a mother to us in the order of grace. Praise God we come, as the hymn says, we'll come to the Father through Jesus the Son. It's a nonsense to believe that we have to have some mediator to bring us into the presence of the Saviour. Our Saviour said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We pray to the Father with boldness in the name of Jesus Christ, who is he? He is our Saviour and our only mediator. The Word of God alone, Christ alone, thirdly, grace alone. Praise God, Christ is offered to us as a gift. We can't work our way into God's favour. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But we read in John 3.16, don't we, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Scripture alone points us to Christ alone. And we realise that Christ alone is offered by God's grace alone to us as a gift. We don't deserve the gift. We don't deserve God's mercy. But he comes to us in, in his, 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 his love and mercy to us. And he says, I'm offering you salvation through my son. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith. By grace are you saved. It's the gift of God not of works, lest, lest any man should boast. But Rome does not believe that. Rome believes that grace must be gathered in by works and by attendance at the sacraments. You, are, you get grace when you're baptised. Every time you go to Mass, more grace is like collecting stamps in a certain way. You gather it all in, in the hope that when death comes, you'll have enough grace to escape the worst of purgatory. The 1994 Catechism, communion with the flesh of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit, preserves, increases and renews the life of grace received at baptism. And the work of redemption is carried on. So they believe, yes, God gives a gift, but you can't rely on that gift alone. You've got to live, you've got to live by your own works. And fourthly then, faith alone. We've been offered this gift. We must accept it. And that's when we are saved. We realise then as the Holy Spirit wakens us up that Christ is offered to us and we flee to him in faith. Faith builds on grace. We praise God tonight for faith. You had your, your, your own minister or your own, one of your own ministers, the Reverend John Greer, speaking about justification by faith alone. It's a wonderful, wonderful doctrine. And the shorter catechism says faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Rome's position on justification by faith, again, is one of gathering works, doing good works, amassing some sort of favour with God by your efforts, which is what Luther tried to do until he realised it was a hopeless task and he fell in faith and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible alone, Rome doesn't believe it. Uh, Christ alone, Rome doesn't believe it. Grace alone, Rome doesn't believe it. Faith alone, Rome doesn't believe it. And finally, for the glory of God alone, and Rome does not believe that. Rome believes in the glory of the church, the majesty of the church. One of the things that annoyed Luther was all the money going to spend to build the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, the grandness and grandeur of Rome. Somebody I was speaking to recently had been in Poland. They said all around there's shrines and great churches in honour of John Paul II. Money <coughs> taken from poor people to the glory of who? The glory of the church, the glory of the Pope, the glory of the whole system. But in salvation we rejoice that all the glory goes to God alone. You and I tonight, we're guilty, hell-deserving sinners. We don't deserve the least of God's mercies. Why did God call you to himself? Because he loved you. And he called you to himself for his own glory. We are the beneficiaries of salvation. Of course we are. The Shorter Catechism question one, that well-known question. And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But outside of Christ, you can't glorify God. 
You have no understanding of that concept. You're glorifying yourself. Outside of Christ, it's all to do with man. But once you're saved, you realise that you're salvation. You're a trophy of grace. And God is the one who deserves all the glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved to the world that he gave us his son. And tonight, my friend, if you're faith, you've come to the word of God and you've found Christ. And you've accepted that gift by faith alone. Tonight you're trusting in him. You don't fear death. You're at peace. Because all is well with your soul. And when death comes, as it will come to us all, we'll then be taken through the valley of the shadow of death into the immediate presence of the one who died for us. What a wonderful, glorious gospel. And at the end of the day, all these different things we can talk about tonight and throughout the course of this week about the Reformation, it all comes back to the wonderful, wonderful gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I trust tonight that all of us have our faith in him. Yes, doctrines are vitally important. An understanding of those doctrines, I encourage you to understand the five solas, to compare and contrast them with what the Church of Rome teaches, to be aware in your own daily lives of the subtlety of Rome, the subtlety of false religion, the subtlety indeed of those who would claim to be evangelicals. Stand one with the other in defence of the glorious gospel. And I want to conclude with a quote that sums it up very well. Pastor William Shisko of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in America, and this is a quote that I just think is worth just giving to you as we close. True Protestantism is biblical religion. It challenges the modern inability to know what is true by an authoritative, thus says the Lord. It lifts the crushing weight of guilt from the shoulders of sinful men, women and children by a joyous proclamation of righteousness through faith in the person of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for sinners. It offers meaning and purpose to all Christians by addressing them as priests of God in Jesus Christ. Such is true Protestantism. Such is the religion of the Bible. It is for these convictions that we stand and we heartily encourage you to stand with us in this expression of the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Amen. Thank you. Let's just close in a brief word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee again tonight that we can come with boldness to thee at the close of our meeting. We thank thee for Christ our Saviour. He is the way, the truth and the life. Tonight, our gracious God, we rejoice that he's seated at thy right hand, interceding for us, our prophet, priest, and king. And we come to thee, our Father, and we thank thee. We thank thee for that moment in our own lives when the scales were lifted off our eyes. Just as Martin Luther himself discovered suddenly the wonderful, wonderful gospel, we thank thee for those perhaps who preached it to us, those who witnessed to us. We thank thee for the preaching and reading of thy word at a point in our lives where we were led from darkness to light from death unto life and we were justified by faith alone in Christ alone mm. and our father tonight we have been considering some complex and difficult issues and Lord we don't want to sit in judgment on anyone but there are spirits at work that are dangerous and we pray indeed that that will help us Lord to be conscious of the subtleties of false religion as they are manifested all around us we pray too, Lord, for fellow believers that they would not be lured into a false position of weakness because of those subtleties. And Father, we know that we need ourselves to take heed lest in standing we would fall. Help us to be those who love thy word and are steeped in it and who seek to encourage one another to stand fast in our reformed faith. And our Father, we pray again for the lost all around us. Lord, we live in a secular, godless world. We live in a world that has been handed over to thy judgment. And we pray in wrath that will remember mercy. We pray, Father, for the Protestant people of our land, steeped in uh, culture and secularism and godlessness, having symbols but no substance, Lord. We pray for them that thou will turn them away from these things to the, to the only living and true God and the only Saviour. They may remember the God of their fathers, that thou will revive thy work, we pray, in our land and in our day. We think of the Roman Catholic people, Lord, we, we love them. We have some good conversations with them. 
we reach out to them. Lord, they're trapped in a dark and awful system, but we pray for them tonight. Just as thou didst speak to Luther and Melanchthon and all the other Roman Catholic reformers of that time, thou wilt similarly speak, Lord, to those within that church today. Amen. And God, that there might be a fresh outpouring of thy spirit, yes. not only in our own land, but across the nations of the earth. We think, Lord, of the, mm. the way in which the Western world is gone. And we pray indeed again that thou wilt raise up men faithful to thy truth yes. and to thy word. And help us, we pray, to be men and women and indeed boys and girls who want to gain more knowledge of thy word, who want to be steeped in it, mm. not for the sake of knowing it, but for the joy of living it out and being a more effective witness in a day of evil and a day of apostasy. Help us, we pray, to stand fast until our day is done. And help us to pray one for the other too in these things that will help us, Lord, indeed to encourage each other to be faithful unto death. We ask all of these things in our Saviour's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.